0: Raise it up high so you can follow along with us. Philippians chapter 3, looking at the first eight verses of chapter 3. Sounds like everyone's got there. It's a joy to a pastor's here to hear, hear the pages flipping in the Bible. It's great. Philippians chapter 3, starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit Yet, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ. The title of my study this morning is Remember the Joy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together to be in your word, knowing, Lord, that it's your desire to speak to our hearts. And so, Lord, we pray that we would have those open hearts to receive all that you have for us, this morning, Lord, that we would be attentive to your word. We thank you for this time. Lord, we also pray if there's anyone that has joined us that has yet to put their faith and trust in your son, Jesus Christ, that they're yet to be born again, to have their sin forgiven, would you especially touch their heart today? So we thank you for this time, Lord. We give it to you. We ask that you continue to anoint it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Maybe you've heard this before. It's what's called a, a comparison between cats, it's called Cats Are Like Teenagers. Got five things. Number one, neither cats nor teenagers turn their heads when you call them by name. <laughs> teenagers like cats can lay on the living room sofa for hours on end without moving, barely breathing. No cat or any teenager has ever improved anyone's furniture. Cats have nine lives, teenagers carry on as if they did. Number five, Cats that are free to roam outside sometimes have been known to return in the middle of the night to deposit a dead animal in your bedroom. Teenagers are not above that sort of behavior. It goes on. therefore, if you must raise teenagers, the best sources of advice are not other parents, but veterinarians. And remember, above all, put out out the food and do not make any sudden moves in their direction. When they make up their minds, they will finally come to you for some affection and comfort and it will be a triumphant moment for all concerned. It's been said that most parents go through three stages or three phases with your children. The first phase, elementary school years. Man, my parents are so smart. man, They know everything. My dad is Superman. Open up his shirt and there's a giant S right there. Second phase, the elementary years are followed by the teen years. My parents don't know very much at all. In fact, they don't know anything. They're way too old-fashioned. Third phase, adult years. My parents, they were pretty smart after all. Maybe I should call and get their advice. Uh, We could say that the churches in Philippi was in that teenage phase with Paul. They'd been on their own for a while, but... As a result of that, there's been some outside influence coming in that wasn't so good in their lives. And it concerned the Apostle Paul. See, these false teachers coming in were teaching them that in order to be truly saved, you must convert to Judaism. And in order to convert to Judaism, you would have to keep the law of Moses, and the man would have to be circumcised for him and his family to be truly right with God. Now, these guys were known as Judaizers. They were taking the gospel and putting a work alongside of it. They doubted that God's grace was really sufficient and decided that uh, works is the true way to salvation. Now, we would call them legalists today. And so Paul, like a parent of a teenager, decides to spell it out for them in a letter. So it's clear. And he does so in chapter 3 in three ways. And these are our three points if you're taking notes this morning. Paul tells us, number one, remember the joy. Number two, beware of dogs. And number three, worship the Lord. Number one, remember the joy. Look at verse one. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Now, that word finally there in the Greek, it means the word furthermore or let me add. It's not like what uh, you might hear me do from Sunday after Sunday, where I say, in closing, and you know you have another half hour to go before uh, I really actually get to where I'm closing. But that's not what Paul is doing here. Paul is saying, furthermore, in addition to this, I want, you to, I want to say this one more time. What does he say? What he's already said. Rejoice in the Lord. Remember your joy in the Lord. Listen, the book of Philippians is all about joy. And as we've been studying this, we've realized that there are many Christians today that are not living lives full of joy. Yes, brother, I'm fighting the fight. I'm I'm walking the walk. I'm I'm carrying my cross. No, what you are is depressing. Okay, that's what you are. Yeah, but you don't know my life. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how hard my life has really been. Really? See, the amazing thing to think about is that this joy that Paul keeps talking about, when he wrote these words... (laughs) It wasn't a time when he was living on the lap of luxury. I mean, he was living in a place of extreme discomfort, to say the least. He'd been prison in prison, chained to Roman guard for his faithful sharing of the gospel. But that didn't stop him from having joy. He had that joy, and he still longed for, for them, this church in Philippi, to have the same joy that he had from being free in Christ. Though Paul was in chains, he was free. We're going to see what that means in a moment. So Paul writes this letter to them to let them know, hey, the Christian life is to be joyous life. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in Jesus. In fact, as we pointed out when we began this study, 19 times in these four chapters of Philippians, Paul mentions the words joy, rejoicing, and gladness. Chapter one, verse four, Paul said, "In every prayer of mine, making requests for you with all joy." Last week we looked at chapter two, verse 29 about Epaphroditus. We see him therefore in the Lord with great joy. Here in chapter 3, Paul reminds them again, rejoice in the Lord. And we know when we get to chapter 4, verse 4, Paul's really going to say to them, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. That's why Paul's saying, this is not tedious for me to say this to you right now. You need to understand the importance of having this joy in your life. It's the whole reason I'm writing this letter to you. In other words, if you've lost your joy in the Lord, you need to get it back. Listen, the same thing can happen to you and to I. And this is concerning to me because all too often when we come to to Christ, first come to Christ, everything is great. You have this newfound joy and peace, this new life in Christ, and and that desire to really serve the Lord. And you do. And you step, oh, this is great. Oh, Lord, you're so good. and Thank you for saving me. Oh, this is great. You take this one step after another step after another step. But then suddenly you start to lose focus. And you become more focused on the stairs and not on the Lord. And as if you're on this The stair stepper of life, climbing these stairs, one after another, another, and going nowhere. I decided a few weeks back that I wanted to try one of those stair steppers at the gym. I always did the treadmill. I thought, you know, the stair steppers look interesting. Maybe I can get a better workout. I didn't know how it worked. So I got up on the thing, and I pressed a few buttons, and I thought I was on my way. And it was hard. And I'm really pressing hard down on those steps. Oh, man, this is hard, until my son came over to me and said, Dad, you don't have the machine on. I'm forcing down those steps, you know. Oh man! And I think we can be the same way, man. I'm on the, the Christian stair stepper of, of, of the Christian walk, and I'm pressing, i trying to keep the rules, and trying to keep the regulations, and pressing down. I got to get to Bible study, and I got to get to prayer and praise and communion and then men's study. I got to get to women's study. I got to go down to evangelize. And steps, 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 stop, stop! Because what happens in that short span of time is that that life in Christ we are called to enjoy has now become a life in Christ that is no longer joyful. A life in Christ that is complex. You're raveled up in, 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 in knots and, 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 and all of these responsibilities that you, that you didn't have before when you were a heathen. And think about it. Why? Because you've lost that joy in the Lord. The joy in serving the Lord. It's become a duty. It's become a routine. It's become a burden. And Yet Jesus said in Matthew 11.30, My yoke is easy. And my burden, it's light. So what's the problem? You need to turn the stair stepper on. You need to get back that joy in your life that you had when you first came to Christ, when it was a joy to be used by God and to share your faith to a stranger downtown. When it was a joy just to look forward to the next time we can come for prayer, praise, and communion night, just because you knew that the Lord was going to speak to your heart, you were going to hear from Him. When it was such a joy to volunteer to do anything around the church because you knew by serving in church you were serving the Lord. My point is this, our, our joy is found in the Lord. He is our life. He is what makes us move. But if it's not about Him, then it can be a burden. Us pressing down on those steps. When it, but when it's about Him, He's the one moving those steps. And we're, we're just along for the ride. Okay, now, now where do you want me to go, Lord? Okay, this is awesome. You have purpose and direction. See, they were not to rejoice in what they were doing. They were to rejoice in the Lord. For what he has done. That's why Paul says, it's not burdensome for me to remind you about the joy we should all have in the Lord. And yet, Paul knew exactly why they had lost their joy. So he gives them this warning, and that brings us to point number two, as Paul holds up a sign that says, beware of dog. You know, actually he gives us three things to beware of. This is point number two. Look at verse two. Beware of dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. First, he says, beware of dogs. Now, Paul's not saying beware of a pack of pit bulls or some great big giant German shepherd or that type of thing. In fact, the word for dog that is used here is a word that at that time the Jews used to describe non-Jews, the Gentiles. So Paul is, is turning this word around and he's using it for those who are known as these Judaizers. Now what did these guys do and why is Paul placed to beware of dogs out about them? Well, as I said already, these Judaizers were the ones who actually acknowledged Christ as the Messiah. However, they were not convinced that Jesus' death was sufficient to cover the law. They still felt that they had to adhere to the Mishnah, the six hundred and thirteen laws, and then on top of that, acknowledge Christ as the Messiah. So because they were living according to that standard, they firmly believed it was right. They wanted to make sure everyone else was living according to that same standard as well. That is why Paul says, beware of dogs. It's what do dogs do, besides doo do, uh, I mean, they, they sniff, right? Dogs sniff. They, they walk. <laughs> you know, that's what they do. And, and listen, there are Judaizers in the church today, but they go by a different name. They go by legalists, and they're always sniffing. You know, they see you in, in your simplicity and your love and in your worship, and, and they, they're close by your feet, and then they're sniffing what? They're sniffing for sin, according to their standards. One pastor calls them sin sniffers and fault finders. You know, okay, okay, what are you? Are you a Calvinist? Are you a Are Are you King James Version only? Are you NIV? Baptism of the Holy Spirit? What are you? See, that's why Paul's picture of a dog is so perfectly clear. Now, what else do dogs do? Well, I mean, they, you know, they kind of sit and they watch over your property. You know, and maybe you're minding your business, going on a walk, and you don't have anything to have to do with anything, but just the fact that you're there, and often that dog comes charging out, barking at you. Now, many of you know that I worked for the Postal Service for 17 years, and I don't have a real good relationship with dogs. Um, Remember one of the first years I was working that, you know, I, I did the different routes that were there and, and I'm walking down this street that I was unfamiliar with and, and there's this fence and I'm just, I got the mail in my hand. It's kind of, it's one of those days just enjoying the outside and all of a sudden, man, the, the mail goes flying. I'm I jumping. I got my mace out of, where, where's the dog? And it was behind the fence, but he was just waiting for me. Just waiting for me to start barking at me, you know? Well, the same thing was happening in Paul's day. A Jewish person would come to Christ, enjoying their relationship with God, worshiping Him through Jesus Christ. He's outside his tent. Maybe he's going on a walk or walking down the path, thanking God for for his liberty, his liberation from the law. Lord, thank you so much that I have Jesus, that that I have everything I have. I have this joy. I have this peace. I've been forgiven. Oh, Lord. Then suddenly, you know, what was that? That's a Judaizer. Man, it's one of these guys saying, hey, what about those meat sacrifices? What about those drink sacrifices? What about the ceremonial washing? How did you wash your hands before you ate? Do you practice, practice the law still as the way the law prescribes? Now that, that new believer, he knows Christ, Jesus paid the price for his sin. He knows he's freed from that responsibility. But now he's got this Judaizer alongside of him, barking at his feet. Feeling bitten and barked and not right. And that is one funny, funny ringtone bang <laughs> So you got this dog barking at your feet. I, I had to let that one not pass. I mean, it was too funny. I've got to get that one after service. <laughs> so get this Judaizer and the, the, this Jewish person who's come to faith in Christ and just barking at him about this, and you've got to do this and you've got to do that. You know, and the same thing is true for the legalist that bites and barks. Well, well were you baptized in this church? Because if you weren't baptized in this church, then you really must not be saved. And now, do you take communion every time you come to church? If not, you're really not saved. And you had that legalist just barking away, you know. you got to do this and you got to do that if you're really saved. I remember growing up in the, in the religion that I was taught. And, and I was taught that if I wanted to go to heaven if I didn't want to spend time in this place called purgatory, a place of flames and burning suffering and judgment, then I must pray the rosary beads every day, and that will assure me I will go to heaven. Now, you're lying in bed at night, and you're thinking about flames and burning. You know, you, you, man, I prayed the rosary bead. I mean, I had, I did, I did, I did. I did. In fact, my mom got me a, a glow-in-the-dark rosary. We talk about freaking you out. I mean, um, but I prayed it. Why? Because it was a fear that was laid upon me. There's fear. And that's what legalists do. They remove the joy and replace it with fear. Always kind of growling. You know, it's that dog thing. Fear that you're not doing enough. Fear, fear. well, you have to do this and you got to do that. Do more and do this. And suddenly you find yourself back on that stair stepper, pressing down harder and harder. Paul says, beware of the dogs that are putting this heavy burden on you, striking fear in your heart that you're not doing enough. But then he adds another beware sign, verse 2. Beware of evil workers. Now, legalists can call evil good, you know, and can and, and, and do evil rather than yet they can call it good. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and, and good evil. Paul calls them here in verse 2, evil workers. So these Judaizers, they joined the church in Philippi and claimed to be Christians, but they were placing this burden on the church saying, you have to keep up the law of Moses to be truly right with God. In other words, if you want to go to heaven, you get there by your good works. Paul replaces their good works with what's called evil works. Here's why. Because the religion of legalists of these Judaizers is what you would call bootstrap religion. You pull yourself up by your bootstraps. You glorify your own work. You're proud. You say, man, i worked hard for my salvation. And you're emphasizing my work instead of the finished work. Listen, good works are a byproduct and a result of a right relationship and salvation with Jesus Christ. It's the result, not the means. But whenever you make good works the basis of salvation, it becomes an evil work. Anybody that says, oh, I'm a good person, I can get to heaven by my good works. No, it's so bad now, it's an evil, work because the Bible says that all of our righteousness is what? As filthy rags. It can't be good enough. Eugene Peterson, in his book, Is Life Really a School for Heaven? wrote something interesting. He says, quote, There are people who do not want us to be free before God and accepted just as we are by His grace. They don't want us to be free to express our faith originally and creatively in the world. They want to control us and use us for their own purposes. They themselves refuse to live arduously with great exertion and openly in faith, but huddle together with a few others and try to get their approval by insisting that all look alike and talk alike and act alike, thus validating one another's worth. And without being aware of it, we become anxious about what others will say about us Obsessively concerned about what others think we should do, we no longer live the good news, but now anxiously try to memorize the script that someone else has assigned to us. We may be secure, but we will not be free. And I know there are churches out there that it's almost like walking into a prison. Man, You all have to wear the same clothing, not prison orange. But, man, you got to have that collared shirt on. you got to have that tie. And you got to have the dress black. And, ladies, man, you have to wear dresses, and it must go at least six inches below the knee. Man, you have to have a Bible study for two hours straight, no break. You know, you will tie 10% every single week, and we want a copy of your W-2 so we can help you. We want to hold you accountable. And you walk in, and it's like the prison doors are shut behind you. Do this. Don't do that. See, Paul's concern for the Philippians was no different than, than the, the uneasiness he expressed when he was saying goodbye to the Ephesians he said, and, and uh, to the elders. He said in Acts 20, verse 29 through 31, he said this, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves men will rise up, speaking perverse things, to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. Paul wasn't angry. Paul wasn't bitter. Paul was bold. Paul was blunt. To the Jewish believer, he was saying, you don't need to go back there. You don't need to return to the law. But it's even more than that. See, Paul had no tolerance here for these Judaizers because they were not only telling the Jews they needed, still needed to keep the law, and to be circumcised for salvation. But they were saying these things to these new Gentile believers in Philippi, saying you must become a Jew and keep the law and be circumcised for salvation if you want to truly be saved. That's why he posted this third sign here, if you will, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, but then he takes it a step further and posted, uh, verse 2, beware of mutilation. Now again, going back to these Judaizers for a moment, Imagine your mind. Go back in time, if you would. Go back. You're part of this church. You're not Jewish. You came to faith in Christ. You know, you know a little bit about the Jews, but not a whole lot. You don't really know that much about Judaism. But but these guys come in and they start telling you, listen, we we had a long history. We're Jewish. Jesus came. He was was Jewish. Man, here's what we know. You know, if you really want to get to heaven, then you have to practice all of the Jewish practices, including circumcision. You, you you can't get to heaven, you Gentile, you nod you unless you go through the ritual of circumcision. And that would certainly take away my joy, just like that. <laughs> because then it's it's that dog again, grout, you know. Paul would say not so. Paul messaged over and over and over again this stuff, those rituals cannot save you. In fact, he, he feels so strong about this he calls circumcision mutilation. Basically, you're performing unnecessary surgery. All you're doing is mutilating somebody. Listen, legalism mutilates relationships. Legalism mutilates the grace of God. Legalism mutilates the finished work of Jesus Christ. Paul the Apostle says, I'm following the law according to love. It's the love of God shed abroad in our hearts through Christ Jesus. I am complete in Christ. Man, don't be laying this trip on me about how I still need to obey the law. Christ Jesus was the fulfillment of all 613 of those laws. So I'm not bound by them any longer. And though I still sit here in prison, Paul would say, I am truly free in Christ. Paul's saying it's all about our hearts. In fact, I want you to take note of these three verses. You don't need to turn there, but I just want to point them out to you. The first one is Leviticus twenty-six forty-one. You can mark it down and look it up later. There in Leviticus 26. The Lord was rebuking Israel for their unfaithfulness to Him and their following after idols and, and tells them if they confess their unfaithfulness to Him, He's going to remember their covenant He made with them. But He says this, interestingly, in verse 41. He says, If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant. Leviticus 2641 41-42. See, it's the heart that the Lord is looking at. Deuteronomy ten sixteen, The Lord says, Therefore, circumcise the foreskin of your heart and be stiff-necked no longer. It's the heart that matters. One more. Jeremiah 4, verse 4. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your hearts, you men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that no one can quench it because of the evil of your doings. See, what these verses tell us is, is that even with the act of circumcision... God is looking for the right heart. And that fleshly part of the heart, man, that's what needed to be cut away. It wasn't a matter of the body, it's a matter of the heart. Let me make this point a little bit clearer. Over the book of Romans, chapter 2, you can turn there. The subject is the same. If you want, I'm going to read it, though, from the New Living Translation. It, it has a little more punch to it. Paul writes this in verse 25 of Romans, chapter 2. In the New Living, he says, The Jewish ceremony of circumcision... Has value only if you obey God's law, but if you don't obey God's law, you are no better off than an uncircumcised Gentile. So Paul is letting his readers know that the covenant of circumcision actually was very, very important. It was very, very serious. In fact, the first time Moses finds out uh, from God that there this would be this, this covenant relationship and, and 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 how it would happen, how do you think Moses responded? I know for me, I'd be saying, how about an ear piercing? I mean, you know, isn't there something else we can do to establish this covenant relationship with you? But Moses, he didn't question it. He understood what mattered to God was not the cutting away of the flesh, but the condition of the heart. But if you were going to be a serious Jew, then you had to take serious spiritual things. And in order to do that, you had to be willing to cut this part of your body. It was a sign about the serious, you were serious about the things of God, obeying his word. Now here's where the problem comes in. The Jewish people, they, uh, they started to abuse us. The problem rose up that being circumcised now had become a badge of honor. It was turned into a badge of righteousness. Look what I have done. Look what we're a part of. Look who I am. Paul is saying you've missed the point. Because you're not caring about the condition of your heart, you're more concerned about the condition of your body. And with that condition of your body is what you're walking around in piety. You're walking around in this air of arrogance, this pride that says, look how good I am, look what I have done, look how holy I am. And these Jews now have this arrogance and this pride, and, and they're now looking down on those who are not circumcised. say, so, well, unless you cut the flesh, then you won't be as I, well as I am. Well, what were they? They were prideful, they were arrogant, and they were snooty. I heard one guy say, pride is the only disease known to man that makes everyone sick except the one who has it. Judaizers, it was all about the pride, the ritual, the physical act of circumcision. But Paul says, you've missed the point. What's the point? Again, Romans 2, verse 26. Paul says, and if the Gentiles obey God's law, won't God declare them to be his own people? In fact, uncircumcised Gentiles who keep God's law will condemn you Jews who are circumcised and possess God's law, but don't obey it. See the problem? The whole idea was supposed to be that something was happening on the inside, that it was a matter of the heart. But it wasn't happening. Paul continues, verse 28 of Romans 2, he says, For you are not a true Jew just because you were born of Jewish parents, or just because you have gone through the ceremony of circumcision. No, a true Jew is one whose heart is right with God, and true circumcision is not merely obeying the letter of the law, rather it's a change of heart produced by God's Spirit, and a person with a changed heart seeks praise from God, not from people. Now, stay with me on this. It's like this. I have this wedding ring. It's on my finger. I've had it for 37 years, 7 months, and 14 days. I figured it out last night. Now, I wear it joyfully. I wear it gladly. Now, a wedding ring, all it is is a piece of jewelry. And just because you buy a ring and put it on your finger, it doesn't mean you're married. You actually have to have a spouse. That's the way it works to be married. Now, you can buy a ring But again, it doesn't mean you're married. You can have a ritual, but it doesn't speak of the reality unless it happens on the inside. Again, my point, Paul is saying it's all about the heart. It's the condition of the heart. It's not the skin. It's the spirit. Where's your heart at? What is true circumcision? Well, that takes us back to Philippians 3, verse 3, and our third point. Number one, remember the joy. Number two, beware of the dogs of evil workers and of mutilation. Number three, worship the Lord. Look at verse 3. Paul says, For we are the circumcision who worship God in the Spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. See, Paul says, it's a matter of the heart, and then he describes what truly marks a true Christian. And he says three things. For we are the circumcision, number one, who worship God in the Spirit, number two, who rejoice in Christ Jesus, and number three, have no confidence in the flesh. For we are the circumcision number one who worship God in the Spirit. In other words, we're true worshipers. I think this is one of the best definitions of a Christian written in the New Testament. Worshiping God in the Spirit. In other words, we're not trusting in our flesh. To to us, it's about the inward reality, not the outward stuff. I think of when Jesus met that Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 and how she was in conflict over where she should worship. And she said, Lord, you know, the Jews, they worship there in the temple, but, but we, you know, Samaritans, we worship over here on Mount Gershon, and so we're, we're owning. Where's the right place to worship? And I love Jesus' response. He says, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. See, true worship. It's not going to be this prideful, air of arrogance, snooty attitude that Paul was talking about with these Judaizers. Rather, it's based on the Holy Spirit and truth. How's that played out for us? Well, it comes back down to our hearts. You know, you come into church and you're here to worship the Lord and we're we're asked to stand for worship and yet our hearts are saying, you know, I I really don't feel like standing. Can't we just sit? Where's Sean this week? How come he's not here? And I'm not so sure. I don't like the light being so low when I worship. I think it's a little bit too loud. I, I think it's too cold here. I think it's too hot in here. And Why is that person sitting in my seat? Don't they know it's my seat that I sit there? And I don't like the way they wave, raise their hands. They raise their hands this way. They should raise their hands that way instead. And, and, and what's happening is you're no longer worshiping God in the Spirit. That's pretty much the flesh. And man, I think about how bad our flesh stinks. I mean, we had to prepare just to come to church this morning, hairsprays and soap and shampoos to clean it up, to make it smell nice. And here's my point. We shouldn't try to honor God with our flesh. It smells. Worship Him in spirit and in truth. So the question isn't whether you raise your hands and worship or close your eyes or sway back and forth. The question is, do you worship Him with your heart, with your spirit? Who is your focus? Is it Jesus or is it everyone else, what they're doing or not doing? Secondly, Paul says in verse 3, we are the circumcision who rejoice in Christ Jesus. Paul, he loves that word rejoice. I like it too. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. Over and over again. Here, it means to brag. It means to brag. Now, we don't brag about our own work. We brag about the finished work of Jesus Christ. We rejoice in Him. It's not about us. It's not about what we've done. It's about what He's done for us. Listen, the whole reason Paul had these three bewares here is because legalism maximizes the work of the flesh and minimizes the work of Jesus Christ. Whereas grace maximizes the work of Jesus Christ and minimizes the work of the flesh. That's why Paul says the third thing here. It says we are the circumcision. We are true worshipers who have no confidence in the flesh. I love that. Let those last six words sink in. Let those, these words be something you go... Oh, sigh, relax, rejoice. Let them be as Proverbs twenty five eleven says, a word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. Oh, this is sweet. Have no confidence in the flesh. Because the legalist says, man, you get there by pulling up your bootstraps, you get there by your good works, that God helps those who help themselves. No way. Our God, uh, you know, helps the helpless. That's what the gospel says. There's nothing we can do to make us right with God. Praise the Lord about that. It's all about Him. Now, to make this point absolutely clear, Paul, by way of contrast, says, let me give you an example. And we're going to close out this morning with these remaining verses. Look at verse 4. He says, Though I also may have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. And then he gives this list of accomplishments. And you can maybe imagine he's got this scroll and maybe, you know, like he's in his office and he's got this, list, this scroll of accomplishments, maybe these certificates he's had over the years. And he begins to read them off. Look at verse 5. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Now stop there. Don't look at verse 7 yet. This is Paul's scroll. He says, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh, it would be me. Now, I don't want to, but I'm going to show you that I could have. Now, did you notice what was first on that list? Paul says, verse 5, I was circumcised the eighth day. He's saying, on the eighth day that I was alive on this planet, I was obeying the law. That's when it started for me, all the way back when I was eight days old. Now, can you Can you get any more righteous any earlier than that? Not according to the law. I mean, he's being very, very righteous. Again, on the eighth day, he's obeying the law. But there's more, he says. He also says he's of the stock of Israel. Basically, I was born on the property. I wasn't born in Egypt. I was born on the property. That's how much I'm a Jew. I was born in Israel. Then he adds, of the tribe of Benjamin. Oh, this was something. Something. See, Benjamin was the only tribe out of all the rest of them who chose to still walk in obedience when the northern tribe and the southern uh, kingdom split and, and went down. Benjamin was a tribe that only obeyed the law. So Paul says, man, I got the Benjamin card. Man, I, I'm a Benjamite, Benjaminite kind of, na 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 nah, nah, you know, I got that too. Then he says, on top of that, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Hey, my parents were Jewish. My grandparents were Jewish. My great-grandparents were Jewish. My great-great-great-grandparents were Jewish. I mean, forever. We've been Jews forever. You won't find any mixed relationship in our past. Then he says, concerning the law, I was a Pharisee. Man, he worked his way to the top. You know, that was a Pharisee. Then he says, concerning zeal, persecuting the church. In other words, I wasn't just a Pharisee by name. I was actively involved. I persecuted those who I sensed were in the Jewish faith becoming Christians. In fact, so much so, I stood there when the first martyr of the church was stoned. Stephen, I was right there. Then he says, when it comes to the law, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, I was blameless. I kept it blamelessly, Paul says. All 613 of those laws, I kept them. So what I'm trying to do here is as we go over these verses, is to establish for you a picture that we have, again, Paul's scroll, his frame on the wall, about these accomplishments, about these achievements. So how does Paul feel about the scroll, his achievements, his accomplishments, his degrees? Look at verse 7 now. But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. But those those of you that have a King James Version Bible, that word rubbish there, you'll see it says the word dung. And in the English word, you know what that stands for. It's, you know, Scooby-Doo-Doo. Okay, that's what it is. I think Paul is making his point abundantly clear right here. All those things that I can brag about in my life, all the accolades, all those accomplishments, they're nothing compared to Jesus Christ. That's all doo-doo. Why? Because Jesus is everything. Jesus did for you what you could never do for yourself. When Jesus died on that cross, He said, It is finished. Finished was the work of salvation. Finished was the price Jesus paid for my sin. He paid it in full. So why go back to trying to earn God's favor with what I do when it's not about that? When it's all about God's grace. When it's all about what Jesus Christ has done. All that will do is zap you of your joy. Don't go there. Paul says, It's not tedious for me to remind you that the Christian life is to be all about joy. To be about joy. I want to close with this story. Suppose you decide to take a driving vacation. So you want to go down to Branson, so you get out of Springfield, suddenly you notice on the 65, heading down towards Branson, the drivers aren't driving their cars, they're pushing them instead. And you see one car, and you think, well, maybe he's just out of gas. But then you keep going and down the road, and you see another one. Then another one after that and you're going, What's the deal here? So you pull into the gas station and start filling up your tank and someone comes in after you pushing their car. And they say to you, Well, where are you heading? So oh, we're going down to Branson for vacation. They say, Well, so are we. But I noticed that you're driving your car, but but we're all pushing our cars. You say, Yeah, yeah, I noticed that too. What's up with that? Well, see, we've discovered that if you push your car, you save a whole lot of gas. It doesn't cost very much. It's good for the environment. See, we've learned this secret. It's, it's a secret, deep secret of life that if you push your car, it's so much better. So you say, okay, so you decide to push your car all the way up and down those hills heading to Branson. Now, here's the question. How much joy are you going to have when you get down there? <laughs> not very much. I mean, not at all. See, that's what Paul meant when he said to the Galatians in Galatians 3.3. 3, are you so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect? In the flesh. In other words, you mean to tell me that you've been given a full tank of gas in the Holy Spirit and you've abandoned that all and you're going to try and push your way through life, push your way, try and earn yourself? There's no joy in that. Listen, remember the joy. Remember again, Jesus paid it all. Every sin you've ever committed or ever will commit has been paid for at the cross. You can't atone for anything, He's done it all. You just simply, by faith, accept it and believe. As we close this morning, maybe for you growing up in church has always been about what you had to do, these rules and these regulations. And, and I hope that you can see this morning that it's not about what you did, it's, that, it's what, what Jesus did for you. That there's only one way to heaven and that's through Jesus Christ and through the cross. It's all about Him. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, I pray that you don't leave here without making that commitment to Him. But for us, man, we serve Him because we love Him. We, we, we have that joy because of what He has done. Nothing that we could do, nothing to earn it. It's all about Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this time, Lord, together that we've had. We thank You, Lord, for, for the atonement of our sin, Lord. Lord, that we thank You, Lord, that, that we have a hope in heaven to all those that have placed their faith and trust in Your Son, Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's anyone here that is yet to do that, Lord, I pray that they would not leave here without making that commitment. Because, Lord, it's about what you've done for them. They don't have to, to, to keep working at it, Lord. You've done the work. Lord, I pray, if there's anyone here, that they would give their life to you this morning. While their heads are bowed and their eyes are closed, is there anyone here this morning you want to give your life to Jesus Christ? You want to be born again today? You want your sin forgiven? Would you just raise your hand so I could pray for you today? Not about what what you can do to earn salvation. It's what Jesus Christ has done for you. And if you've not received that free gift of salvation, but you'd like to, just raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning. Anybody at all? Lord, thanks for this time. Thanks for your grace. Thanks for your love. We pray your blessing, Lord, upon uh, just our time of fellowship afterwards, upon our agape feast downstairs, Lord. We we want to pray Your blessing upon this uh, speech meet there in, in Drury, Lord. That You would be exalted, that You would be lifted up, Lord. That You would be just a uh, that the folks involved in that would just be a great witness of what it really means to have a relationship with You, Lord. We pray that You'd bless our week this week, Lord, as we go to serve You, Lord. That it would not be out of duty, Lord, but out of love. And we pray, Lord, that You restore that joy in our hearts as we think about all that you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.